Welcome to Faith Community Church of Indianapolis. We pray that you are blessed by this message from Pastor John Roberts. To learn more about Faith Community Church, please visit us at FCCIndianapolis.com. Where this sermon started was this simple little text message. He said, good morning, Daddy, and, and let me lead up to this. We, um, uh, my son has one of those horrible commutes. He lives in San Antonio. He lives maybe 15 minutes from his work and has like, uh, well, Friday afternoon, he had an hour and 45-minute commute, <laughs> you know, because construction, roads, rush hour, you know. You can take a 15-minute commute when the roads are clear, and when everybody in the city wants to use the same road, it becomes a horrible commute. Well, we had this, he had a long commute. We had a long conversation Friday afternoon while he was driving home. And in the course of the conversation, um, Gina or I once shared that I was going to be preaching this morning. So he was, in his prayer time, he was praying for me, which, you know, just really impresses me when I know my kids are praying for me which they ought to be praying for me because they know me better than anybody but my wife and they know how much prayer I need. But this is his text. He said, good morning, Dad. <clears throat> Hope you had a good prayer meeting this morning. I was praying for you and this verse came to mind. Isaiah 43, 18 and 19. Believing the best is yet ahead for faith community. Love you. Now, my son's been in, in this church twice Three times he's visited over the years. Never been involved in our church. But the Lord used him to encourage me, first of all, but also to give me a little bit of direction. Let me read that. Isaiah 43, verse 18 and 19. This is what the Lord's saying through Isaiah. And I, it, it really is applicable for our day. So do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Well, when I read that, it's like, okay, I like new things. Uh, you know, I'm, 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 a, uh, I'm a typical guy. I like... New cars, expensive toys, you know, it's the old joke. It's the difference between a man and a boy. The price tag of their toys. It's the only difference between it. And then wives, this is where the amen went. You missed your opportunity there. But it is true. But as I read this and as I meditated on that, um, I, I, I looked at that and I thought, you know, there's, there's some just really good general principles. And, and part of what I saw here was, you know, it's, it's the beginning of the year. We're still in January. The year is, is still young. And um, with, for a lot of ministries, you know, come January, you want to publish your vision for the new year. Well, people ought to do that too. I mean, we have New Year's resolutions. Um, I, I saw a billboard or sign somewhere, um, I think it was a, a donut shop, and it showed a rack of donuts, muffins, cake. I mean, it was, it was just all these things that you want to eat but you're not supposed to eat, and said, just come see us. It's time to go on and break every resolution you made. And I thought, 
wow, you know, it's the 10th of January, but, you know, this is about as far as, as the New Year's resolutions make it. If you can make it into the second week with your resolution, you're, you're probably ahead of most people. But it's not a bad thing to make resolutions or to make a vision, to state a vision, to look out at the year and say, all right, where do I want to go? It's not bad for a church. It's not bad for individuals. But this is what I saw in thinking of that, because this was the question I, I started asking myself, what's my vision for 2016? What am I looking for? Well, if I'm looking for that, this is a great place to start. Verse 18 says, Do not remember the former things, nor consider the things of old. When you dig down into that, the, the, the word there when it says to remember and to consider, they're both very similar. They're two different Hebrew words, but they're both very similar in, in um in their meaning, and it means to mark or distinguish something, to separate it out and, and say, this marks me, or this is, this is where I put a, a, a flag down. And God's saying right here, don't do that with the things in your past. Paul said a very similar thing, I forget those things that lay behind, and I press on towards the mark of the high calling of Christ Jesus. We all have a past. Sometimes there's some things in your past you want to recall. We just marked Jerry and Jonelle's anniversary. Great thing. You ought to have, you know, you ought to have that marker. Guys, here's a hint. If you've got a smartphone, that ought to be one of the things that, that it alerts you about a month before your anniversary. Have an alert come up on your phone. You got a month to figure out. Then have it, you know, about every day to remind you so you don't forget. When Gina and I were, were, were looking at setting a date for our wedding, um, she, uh, we looked and one of the Saturdays was the 4th of July. And she asked me, she said, would you mind getting married on the 4th of July? I said, no, I will never, ever be tempted to forget our anniversary. Never once. I mean, it's just everybody talks about the 4th of July, and it's just easy for me to remember it. But there are certain things that you want to mark. There are some things that, that you know, people can tell you. I, I got born again on such and such a date. I got born again here. That's not a bad thing to remember. Now, I will tell you, some people don't know that. <coughs> my son and my daughter got saved so young, they don't remember. They don't remember a time when they weren't saved. They grew up in church, and it just, at some point, they realized, you know, I, want the, I don't just want to be a part of this church. I don't want, I want a personal relationship, and they did it, but they don't remember exactly when it happened. I don't remember the date that I got saved. I remember it was in a church camp. It was in an open-air pavilion, and I remember going down, don't even know who it was, preached, you know, church camp. You got a bunch of kids. I was eight years old. You know, you wonder what kind of sins does an eight-year-old repent of. I don't know, but I knew I, was, I needed Jesus. That's the main thing. I remember that, that event. I don't know the date, don't know when it was, but it marked me. There are some things we do want to have markers, but we don't want certain things to mark us. Events are, they can mark you, but events other than 
your salvation experience, events should never define you. Let me say that again because there's a huge distinction there. Events can mark you. There are certain things when they happen in your life, it will change you. It will change you instantly, permanently. You know, Nietzsche is famous for saying what doesn't kill you will um, strengthen you. Well, Nietzsche was an idiot. There are something, and Nietzsche was an idiot on many, many levels, but that statement is idiotic. There are some things they, they may not kill you, but they can cripple you. They can maim you. They can so define your viewpoint of the world that you will never get past that. Uh, and there are, you know, there are some that even though they happen, you, you eventually, they can be traumatic, they can be, you know, everybody knows, I assume, what PTSD is. Post-traumatic stress syndrome. You know, probably 8 out of 10 people deal with PTSD. We always think of it with veterans that, that are in combat, and that'll certainly give you PTSD. But most everybody, you've got something in there that in your past that has so marked you, that has so um, hit you, that when something comes up that reminds you of that event, your emotions just, they go off the chart. They go off the scale. You have an emotional reaction that is totally inappropriate for the little event that happened present day. That's the first and foremost mark of PTSD. Something happens here that just by itself, you should have hardly reacted to it, and suddenly you just went off, and whether you, whether you actually manifest it or not, you had that urge to jump and run. You know, the fight or flight thing kicked in. Well, that's what God's saying here. Don't allow those things to define who you are anymore. Don't, don't allow the events of the world to distinguish you. Why? And that can be for good or bad. Now, we're, we're talking personal vision, but let's also talk church vision. Because I, and I, where I hear this is not so much positive. I hear it some. I heard pastor say just this morning, I'm encouraged. Don't really know exactly why I'm encouraged, but I can just feel in the spirit, God's getting ready to do some things. That, that's a great attitude to have, a great vision to have, and to know that God's getting ready to do something. But as often as I hear that, what I hear more than, than the positive vision for this church, what I hear out of people's mouths, and I'm getting ready to step on some toes, and if I stomp your toe, just, you know, take it. But what I hear is, oh, I remember when this place was full. I remember when every seat was here and the spirit was moving and things were going on, you know, and I'll be honest with you, when I hear that, I want to just say, I don't care. I don't want to hear about it anymore. That's in the past. It's dead. It's gone. It doesn't exist anymore except in your memory. Now, it's not bad to mark that. Thank God we have a heritage of worship and we have a heritage of, of, of God moving in this body. 
But that is not our body anymore. And this church at one time had, what, five, six hundred people in it? And things were, were different. Twenty years ago, I was 44 years old, and things were different. So what? I ain't 44 anymore. Well, 20 years ago, this church was different, and, but you can't allow what this church was 20 years ago to, to, to influence how you see us going forward. Except as the good things, I'm going to mark that we have a heritage of this. And in particular, I've waited out here, I might as well just drown myself. In particular, I get the occasional phone call. I'm just not sure I, 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 I want to be around here anymore because I remember when things were hopping and they're just dead now. And there's a part of my flesh that wants to rise up and say, you know, we really hate to lose you, but let me be the first to say goodbye because we really don't need you. We certainly don't need that attitude. And, and even worse, I get phone calls from people that say, I just heard from so-and-so, and so-and-so, you know, this is their home church. I say, really? Because I haven't seen that person in this body for five years, six years, seven years. I, I you know, I'm the one that counts and records the offering. I haven't seen a check come across. Not a dime. They don't support the church financially. They don't support the church with their presence. All they do is call people and say, you know, you all really got problems. Like, well, it could be worse. I guess you could still be here. Pardon me. I, I, I get over in the flesh here for a minute. <clears throat> My point is, people will always, you know, the, the, you're always going to have some negative people in your life. But you can't allow that, the vision of the past, or what people's opinions that used to go here. Let's face it, who is the body? Who is Faith Community Church? It's the people that are involved here now. People that were involved here five years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago, that never show up, that aren't here, that don't come to the, to, to the services, that aren't involved in contributing aren't a part of the body anymore. God bless them. I hope they found some place that they can fit in and that God will use them. But they're not a part of this body now. Now we have, you know, God bless them. I, I'm jealous of them. I used to laugh at the snowbirds. You know, I think how, how idiotic. Go to Florida or Phoenix or wherever for the summer. And I'm so jealous of Steve Sell right now. I, he sends me pictures of, well, this is a picture from the eighth floor. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a little warm out there today. You know, it's 80 and we're suffering down here for Jesus. And I just want to make some smart aleck comment back. And I, I have to say, well, God bless you, brother. We're here and it's 20 and it's snowy and rainy. But, you know, we love you. But my point is they're not here. They're gone for the winter. Trusty's, you know, um, he's gone. Um, the Bogarts are gone. We've got snowbirds that aren't here now. They're still a body, are part of our body. They're still, you know, being a snowbird doesn't mean you're not part of the body. Being not, you know, being ill, not being able to show up for a service, even if you have to be gone for a little while, doesn't mean you're not part of the body. Doesn't mean we don't love you. Okay? And let me try to 
patch those wounded toes. But my point is you can't allow a person who's left here, their negative vision of this body to influence your vision of this body. Those are the things you have to forget. You cannot distinguish them or let those things separate you out mentally to where that becomes how you see this place. When you walk in here, if all you see is empty chairs, you need to change your vision. For one thing, our, our church is not measured by how full the chairs are. Our church is measured by does Jesus, the Spirit of Christ, show up when we have our meetings and does He minister to people? If He's ministering to people, it doesn't matter whether there's one or, or 50 or 500. We're doing what God said to do and we are an effective body of believers. Amen? But also keep in mind that while, you know... The pastor will have a vision for the church overall. The vision and where this church gets to can never surpass the vision of the individual members of this church collectively. If you don't have a vision that when you show up here on Sunday morning or Wednesday nights or whenever you do, or if you, you go to Sherry's house when they have the, this meeting for the ladies, that's, that's a church function. You come to the ladies' meeting on Thursday. When we have a church function, if you don't walk in with a vision that Jesus is there and Jesus is going to talk to me there, then at least for you, that's not going to happen. You can never rise above your expectations. If you walk in here to any service and you're walking in and your thought is, well, I'm here, I'm going to do my duty today. I'll be honest with you, you might as well just stay home for all the good you're going to get. And, I, and I'm not saying we don't want you. I'm just saying it's hard for God to break through that barrier. What you expect to get when you come in here is what you probably will get when you come in here. Thank you for that rousing amen. The good old days will keep you mired in the past, and we need to forget the past. Amen? Why? For this, verse 19, Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will even make a road in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Now, it, it, just look at this. I will do a new thing. I love this when I, I looked at that because when I think new, I'm thinking go to the car lot, get a car that, you know, it's got three miles on it. That's it. It's only been driven out of the, the, the assembly plant up on the, the trailer, off the trailer into the dealership, and nobody's even test drove it. I'm going to be the first to test drive it, and, you know, after I win that Powerball, you know, I can just hand them cash and drive off with it, and it's brand new. That's not what this means. This term here means to refresh or make new. It's kind of like, and, and this is sometimes hard for, if you've ever done any marriage counseling, whether it's official or even unofficial, which I will tell you, um, if you do unofficial 
marriage counseling, it's a dangerous thing to do. But for newlyweds, um, one of the things that, that a lot of newlyweds never understand about a marriage relationship is that you will weave in and out of this in love experience. When you start dating and the only time you see each other is you have both just freshly bathed and you got cologne on and, and you know, the ladies have all their makeup on, the guys actually comb their hair because back then, you know, when you're dating, usually you have hair and, you know, you're, you're on your best behavior. It's not hard to fall in love. You know, you have that intense romantic feeling and it's like, he's the one, she's the one. Oh, they're going to meet my every need. But when you get married, that's, that's a great start. It's a great basis or it's a, it is a basis for marriage. Probably not the best basis for marriage. Because shortly after you get married, at some interval, if you're normal, you're going to have children. And when you have children, for the next 2 to 10 to 20 years, you are going to be so tired that you're, going to have no, you're not going to know what it is like to experience that in love feeling. Now, I, I say that as a generality, but what you find is in most good marriages is you, if you want to feel that, you're going to have to go back to the things that, that you did when you started dating. And if you start doing those activities, suddenly you will find that suddenly you're back in love again. All of a sudden, those feelings come up and they're renewed again and they're refreshed. That's what this is talking about. It's taking things that did exist and it's pumping life back into them. It's pumping, uh, um, I really don't like to use the term emotions because the emotions can be fleeting, but that, that experience. It, it's the same thing that when Jesus talked about um, not putting new wine in old wineskins. When, when you, you used to, in, in ancient times, when they would ferment their wine, they would put it in a, usually a bladder or a sewn skin of some animal. And as it ferments, it produces gas and it swells. Well, after you've done that a few times, that leather gets cracked and it gets dry. And if you put new wine in it and it starts to swell... It'll just rupture and you'll lose all your wine. But the great thing about that, there is a way to renew that wineskin. You go grab some olive oil and you take the oil and you rub the oil into the leather and it will re-soften that leather. And when you get it re-soft, then you can put new wine in and that wine is alive. And it will start producing gas and it will swell, but the wineskin won't break. That's what he's talking about here. You take the oil of the Word. You take the oil of the Holy Spirit and you rub it into your situation and it softens you. And then God's life can come into you and life comes in and with life there's signs of life and it will start to stretch you. But it won't break you. But it will change you. When God says, I want to do a new thing, He wants to revive and refresh and renew the events of your life. That's what He's talking about. Notice, 
<clears throat> now it shall spring forth. That's not like, you know, the Harry Potter movies where they take the wand and they whack it and poop, it pops into existence fully formed. The, the Hebrew term here is the term for sprout, for a seed sprouting. It begins to take root and it begins to grow. It's a process. It's not a, and this is, this is hard, especially for us crazy Maddox, us Pentecostals, and, and I, I use those terms lightly because, uh, or very lightly, because people ask me all the time, well, what kind of church do you, you know, are you involved in? Is it a Pentecostal? Is it charismatic? And my next response is, well, you define Pentecostal and charismatic to me, and then I'll tell you whether we fit that bill. Because what I mean by Pentecostal and charismatic and what some other people think of when they think Pentecostal charismatic, they're not even in the same continent. So you, you have to be careful with your terminology. But God wants to take and, and whatever your situation, He wants to sprout out and spring forth and change things. He wants life to occur. When that happens, He says right there, Shall you not know it? You're going to know things happen. You know, part of the picture here is a woman who gets pregnant. It was kind of funny. I was listening. I was in the car the other day, and I, 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 it's hard to find a radio station that plays decent music. And even the Christian stations, you know, now some of them, they're getting to, they want to, everybody tunes their music to kids and I'm just, you know, I want somebody to come up with a music station that just has worship music. I would listen to it 24 hours a day, but you can't find it. And so I surfing through the radio stations and I found a talk radio station here in town and these ladies were talking about uh, and asked people to call in with their stories of how they found out they were pregnant and how they broke that news to their spouse. And I'm thinking the doctor called and said the rabbit died. I mean, that's, that dates me, but that's exactly how it happened. But, you know, before the, the, the new technology where, you know, you go to the bathroom first thing in the morning and you have a little pee stick, pardon my French, but it tells you whether you're pregnant or not, <clears throat> you didn't know. You couldn't figure out at two weeks that you were pregnant chemically. I mean, it was a complicated thing. The doctors had to draw blood. They literally had to inject that part of that into a rabbit. And if it survived, you're not pregnant. If it dies, you are. Uh, they killed a lot of rabbits figuring out if people were pregnant. But for the most part, women figured out that they were pregnant when the baby got to a sufficient size that they realized there's something going on in my body. Something is different. Gina and I were talking about this just a couple of weeks ago. Her, her, she knew instantly every time she was pregnant because she would, her body would react to where she got hungry this second. 30 seconds later, she's sick to her stomach, and if she doesn't eat, she's going to upchuck. And she had to eat, and it was right now i got to eat, and, but i got to eat three bites, and then I'm full. And it was like... I, that was unique to her. But every time she was pregnant, it was the exact same reaction. And she knew. The second time, first time it was like, wow, have I got some kind of bug or what? Second time it was like, oops, I'm pregnant again. You know you're, you have life in you when you feel it changing you. 
That's what God's doing in these situations. It's going to sprout forth. You may not know it's changing you until at some point you recognize things are different than they were a few weeks ago or a few months ago. Sometimes it may take you six months to a year before you really realize that you are different. And part of it is because you live with yourself. It's like watching your kids grow. You don't see your kids grow. You have a relative that only sees your kids every couple of months, especially when they're really little. Wow. You can, I mean, it's obvious that growth took place. People can meet you sometimes and realize that growth has taken place in your life, even if you don't realize it. But that's what God's doing. He's bringing forth this life, and He's, he's making changes as His life grows in your life. The result... I'll make a road in the wilderness. The wilderness in this situation are events in your life that they want to place you. They want to keep you in a dry and a thirsty place. They want to keep you somewhere where they just the, the enemy defines you in a certain way. You're the one-legged guy. I, you, growing, growing up with kids, you know, I, I remember um, when I was really little, I was Ray and George's boy. And then I became John for a very short time. And for a lot of the people, because I lived in a small rural community, I was John that played basketball for Milltown. And then I, you know, with some of my friends, I was known as John for other behaviors. And then I became known, you know, because I was um, married to Gina. That's, John, that's Gina's husband. And then we, I went through the stage where I was Ryan's dad. Or Tiffany's dad. Now I'm Mordecai's grandpa, or Gage's grandpa, or Faith's grandpa. I'm I all along my life, people outside of me have had ways of identifying me that have nothing to do with me except they define me and recognize me according to my family or according to what I'm doing. That can't be how I define myself. What, what I, there are certain events that will happen in your life. Sometimes tragic, people have had car wrecks. They've never gotten past them. Um, I mentioned PTSD. There are guys that have been in combat, and it, it, it marks them for the rest of their life. They never function normally. Now, I can sympathize, but it's not someplace you need to stay or have to stay. You can get past it through the power of the gospel. It doesn't have to define you forever. There are people that make mistakes. They, get a, they, they have addictions in their life. And for the rest of their life, even after they have, have um, broken the power of that addiction in their life, they view themselves as an addict. And in fact, I've said this before. It's one of the problems I have with the 12-step programs is you have to get up and say, Hello, my name is so-and-so. I'm an addict. I'm an alcoholic. <clears throat> no, I am, you know, to borrow the phrase from Prince, I am the guy who used to be an addict. But I'm not an addict anymore. Now, it may be a subtle difference. And, and let's, let me be honest, the thing that 12-step that programs are good with, I, if I was an addict here, that weakness will always be in my body. 
And I can never take that weakness lightly. I have to always recognize and allow that part to to define me that I can never indulge that behavior ever again for a second because it has the capacity to rule me and to ruin me. Now, let's face it. We... um, we look around and we're quick to label addicts that are addicted to cigarettes or alcohol or illicit drugs. There are a lot of addictions out there that are um, socially acceptable. And, and let me just step on all of our toes. You know, the Bible has a lot to talk about gluttony. You can be addicted to eating food. It's not exactly, and to be honest with you, it's a hard one to break because you are addicted to eating food. You're going to eat every day or you're not going to live. But does food rule you or do you rule food? Do you eat to live or do you live to eat? There's a difference. And the problem is if if I've ever been addicted to a drug, I can walk away from that drug and never go back. If I've been addicted to gluttony, I can't avoid food. i got to eat. How do I do that behavior but not allow it to control me? Only by allowing God to do a new thing and letting His life spring forth and getting so strong spiritually that I can control and, and, um, and suppress or, or rule and reign over my own physical body and over my own carnal desires. The carnal, the, the carnal desires will never disappear until you die. When your body dies, you don't have to worry about your flesh anymore. It, 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 it won't mess with you, you know. Uh, you can take, you can take um, Hugh Hefner. I mean, if any, if any one man has ever done anything to sour our, um, our culture, Hugh Hefner's been it. Well, I have no doubt that Hugh Hefner is completely addicted to pornography. When Hugh Hefner dies, you can walk up to his casket and open that centerfold and put it right in his face. He's not going to react. Dead men don't react to their addictions. As long as you're alive and in your body, though, your flesh will want to rule you. You're going to have to get to a point, and that's part of the road through the wilderness. You can't allow those wilderness experiences to rule you. You have to allow God to make a road through that wilderness and march through that wilderness and get beyond that wilderness. How do I do that? Well, he says it. And he will make rivers in the desert. Puts me in remembrance of you there in Isaiah. Turn back to Psalms 1, very first Psalm. And we're only going to read the first couple of verses. But Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the paths of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. That is the wilderness right there. When you walk in the counsel of the ungodly, You're taking advice from the world. Now, nothing wrong with psychology or psychologists. They can help at times. But I'll tell you, a natural psychologist or a natural psychiatrist that's only, you know, they're a materialist, they don't believe in a spiritual world, 
Or if they do believe in a spiritual world, their idea of the spirit realm is, you know, uh, tapping into the spirit of Gia and letting Mother Earth, and, you know, embrace you and you've got to, you know, let me hypnotize you and go back through your past lives and regress. And uh, those people you just need to, when you figure out that that's where they're coming from, run because they're never going to be able to help you. But taking advantage or advice from that is never a good thing. That's walking in the counsel of the ungodly. Standing in the path of sinners, that's allowing your flesh to dictate all of your things. You want, and, and again, I don't want to get too political here, but you want a, a definition of, of the left, the progressives, in the world today, they're ruled by their emotions. We don't care if something works. We just we feel good because we're trying. Someone asked the president when he was running the first time. He, he made that statement to Joe the plumber about we got to spread the wealth around. And somebody asked and said, "Well, wait a minute. When you do this program, because he was talking, he got they got over on taxes." And they said, well, we're going to tax something or other. And they pointed the fact, historically, when you tax this thing, you get less revenue into the government. And he said, yeah, but it's the right thing to do. Because these people don't need that money. They're just being greedy. They're making too much. Well, I don't want to be ruled by jealousy and, and uh, you know, how much is too much? I haven't ever reached that point. Maybe you have. If you've reached that point, the next time you get a pay raise, just sign that portion of your check over to me because I'd like to get some point where I can look at my wife and say, honey, we're making too much. For one thing, one part of the reason I, I can't find out how much too much is is because every time I make a little more, God whispers in my ear, He says, now you've got a little more funds. Here's some things I need you to give into. I don't care how much you make. And I'm, 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 I was joking earlier about the Powerball. My son jokes and says, you know, um, lotteries are a tax on, the, on idiots, uh, which is true. Well, you know, anytime your odds are, I don't know, 250 million to one, um, you're, you're, that's, that's like taking uh, the old-fashioned phone book, cut out every name for every person that has a phone in the United States, put them in a hopper, pull the number out, read the number, fold it back up, stick it back on the hopper, revolve it a couple of days, and reach in and pick out the exact same phone number again. That's your odds of winning Powerball. Anyway, um, being ruled... By, by your feelings and, and doing something not because it's going to work, because I feel, I feel good because I'm at least trying to help. Well, if I'm drowning and you're trying to help me by taking a pole and whacking me on the head so that I'll wake up and grab the pole, don't help. If, if what you're doing makes it worse, quit trying that and figure out what to do that works right. This is what, what you do. That, those are the ones that stand in, in the, the paths of the sinner. Sitting in the seat of the scornful is lining yourself up with people that say, 
I just don't understand that Christianity. That's just a bunch of hokum. I'm not going to be ruled by a book that's thousands of years old and has all these contradictions and makes no sense. Well, do you want to sit with the scornful? Then you're probably not going to be blessed. But the blessed man is verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. I said in my prayer earlier, there are times when God is always speaking to us, but there are times when I just don't hear. It's like heaven's closed to me and I'm not hearing God's voice. Well, when I hit those times, what I need to do is I need to go get God's Word open and start digging into His Word because this always speaks. Always. And I'll be honest with you, if you get into the Word and it seems dry, get in some more. Double up on your, on your prescription. What are you going to do if, if you get some you know, massive hair-raising bacterial infection and the doctor puts you on an antibiotic and you take it for a day and you don't feel any better? Well, I'm throwing that medicine away. That ain't doing me any good. Well, stay sick then. No, you're going to keep taking it according to its prescription. And if anything, you may go back to the doctor and say, this one's not doing good. You got another one you give me besides this? I remember the last time surgery I had on my hand. I had to stay in the hospital overnight, not because the surgery required it, but because I had to lay in the bed and let them give me nine doses of IV antibiotics because this particular place had had a problem with uh, MRSA, which is a nasty bacterial infection, and their only way to ensure that you could have surgery and not get MRSA was they required you to stay, and they just dosed you like you were, you've never been dosed with antibiotics. If you're not getting relief, plug in. You can take antibiotics by pill. You want to get faster relief, take a shot. You want to get faster relief than that, let them put an IV and give you IV antibiotics and double up on them or triple up on them. You need relief from the problems you're having, get into the Word. You read it a little and it doesn't help, read it some more. Double up, triple up. Get your phone app out. When you stop at a stoplight, instead of texting someone or reading your text, pull up Bible Gateway and read a verse that speaks to you. Well, I haven't found one that speaks to me. Well, keep looking. There's one in there. Because it, the, the, the blessed man delights in it and he meditates in it day or night. Verse 3, he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. This is a desert, a wilderness, and God brings a river there. Now, when you're, if you've ever watched a tree next to a river, part of the problem with those trees is sometimes windstorms will blow them over because they never have to set their roots deep. Did you ever realize that? You ever see, watch, if you look around, when you have a big straight line, I'm not talking about tornadoes, but a straight line wind comes through, a storm comes through, and you'll see trees get blown over. They don't break off at the, at the, at the uh, trunk, but almost always, if you look, they're going to be root-wadded. 
They bring the ball of roots up. But if you look, they never bring. And some I've seen some trees. We're talking three feet in diameter for the trunks. These are old, old trees. But when they get root wadded, they'll snap off only about three feet of roots for a 100-foot tree. What happened? The tree didn't, it, its roots, its deep roots somehow got rotted off or broken off and it didn't have deep enough roots for the amount of, of structure above it and as soon as the wind came, it went down. That's why if you want an answer for this, and we're going to close here with this and we'll have to pick it up next week. Parable the sower gives it to you. Matthew 13, Mark 4, and Luke chapter 8. Let's go to Matthew 13, though, and look at Matthew's account, because they're all just slightly different. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 18, he says, Therefore hear the parable of the sower. Remember, this all started with springing forth in Isaiah 43, 19. Now it shall spring forth, it shall sprout. There's a seed, a life of the Word that's going to sprout off in your life. Well, the parable of the sower is, is God talking about sowing His Word. Verse 19, when anyone hears the Word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one who receives seed by the wayside. When someone preaches something, in particular to an unbeliever, and they don't understand the gospel, well, you know, I'd be a Christian, but I just don't see how, you know, you can worship a God that allows all the evil in the world. How can, if God is real, how can there be terrorists that go into a rock concert, and I don't care how ungodly the people were, and believe me, that rock concert in Paris wouldn't have been a place I would have picked to be. It was a pretty raucous group and a pretty nasty band. But they didn't deserve to die for listening to bad music with bad lyrics, ungodly lyrics. Well, how can there, you say there's a merciful God in heaven when these guys walk in and they mow down 135 innocent people? You don't understand the gospel. That person doesn't understand the mercy of God. And if you ever have the question, how can God allow evil in the world? I can give you a very simple answer, and it's not a good, it's not a, it doesn't, explain a lot, doesn't make your heart feel better. But if God didn't allow evil in the world, He couldn't allow free will in the world. Evil is a result of man's free will. And as long as He's given us free will, we have the choice to do evil. And believe me, the best of you have the capacity to do evil. And if you think you don't, you just haven't been, your buttons haven't been pushed in the right order. There's none of us, none, none, zero, that don't have the capacity to, to do evil if you're pushed enough. A person who hears the word but doesn't understand, in particular, the God behind the word, but even the word itself, that word's never going to take root. The enemy will come in and snatch it away immediately. You can be a believer, you can be a Christian, you can be saved and hear a message that, that you don't understand and the enemy will snatch it away. Prime example, 
I know a lot of, of pastors, very good men, preach the gospel of salvation, get a lot of people saved, will flat out tell you, I do not believe that it's always God's will to heal. And I will tell you with great confidence they don't ever have to worry about experiencing God's healing. Why? Because they don't understand that part of the gospel. People, I've had people, lady called me this week. Um, she wasn't part of the church, but she, you know, she had been here once years ago. Um, in fact, the last time she was here, Pastor Leonard talked to her. That ought to date when she was here. Um, but she had had an experience at a church several years ago when she went there last. And the pastor was preaching against tongues and, you know, how you just want to get away, stay away from that. And she wanted my opinion. Well, I gave her my opinion. I didn't tell her what she wanted to hear. But I can tell you that pastor doesn't care for tongues. He doesn't believe in tongues. He doesn't ever have to worry about it manifesting in his church. It's not going to happen. If it's not preached from the pulpit, you're never going to see it in the pews. It just doesn't happen. What you don't understand, you will never experience. Look at verse 20. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he stumbles. The Greek word there for stumbles is scandalizo. He's scandalized. Well, I thought, I, I thought you told me God heals, and here I've had this happen to me. You told me if I sowed, God would bless me financially. And man, I gave, I gave my first tithe check, and my car broke down, the washer broke. What, what's happening? He heard the word, and he received it with joy, but tribulation, persecution arose because of the word. And they were scandalized. Their brain said, well, if that was true, these things couldn't have happened. Don't ever think that just because you believe in healing, you can't get sick. The enemy always has a capacity to test your faith and to bring evil upon you. The fact that God heals doesn't mean that you'll never get sick. It means that when Satan brings sickness or injury or disease your way, you have a weapon to fight back with. That's the point of the message. And then yet, um, if, but if you don't have that root in yourself, and that's part of going back to Psalm 1, the tree that's planted by the water, Sometimes we, God allows periods of seeming drought in our lives. Because let's face it, when things are running great, boy, it's easy to be a Christian. Paychecks are hopping in, you feel good, your family relationships are all just perfect, you know, cars running well, everything's just hunky-dory. And I've actually met a couple of people that seems like that's their entire life story. Never been my life story. But it seems, I have met a couple people, it seems like their life story. But if you, if you set yourself to believe some things, I'll guarantee you, you're going to be tested. You're going to be tested hard usually. But if you, when those tests come, if you drive yourself back to the Word, you will send your roots deep. 
See, the, the parable of the sower is not really about the word or even about the soils. It's about the attitude of the person who changes their soil. It's like when I use the, the, the parable of Jesus with the wineskins. It's not that your wineskin was dry. It's that did you allow it to stay dry? Were, did you have rocky soil? When you were first born again, yeah, your soil was rocky. But did you allow the Word to go in and soften that soil? See, the great thing about the Word of God is it'll dissolve rocks. It'll change sand to loam. Now, if you're not a, soil, a gardener, you don't know the difference between sandy soil and loamy soil. But believe me, if you're wanting to grow tomatoes, loam's a heck of a lot better than sand. Unless you're, you know, raising root crops... You don't want sandy soil. But even with it, you want a good soil. Well, it's not the soil that you're born with. It's the soil that you cultivate. And sometimes you will go through periods where it seems like I'm in the midst of a drought. That's God allowing you the opportunity to get in His Word and to sink your roots deep. So that when the storm comes, and remember the, the, the parable of the two houses... The person who hears the word but doesn't do the word is the person whose house was built on sand. It's the tree who doesn't drive their roots deep and when the wind comes, you pull up the root ball. But the person who, who takes, when the drought comes, they drive their roots deep. The wind can come, but you can't pull those roots out. That's the person who heard the word and did the word. I don't, it's not just that I believed it, I exercised it. And I'll, I'll give you a personal example, and I, I apologize in advance, probably for the next year you're going to hear a lot of examples that happened in the last month, because it was a month ago today that Gina collapsed, and, you know, to be honest with you, the first 30 minutes, I thought, this is it, I'm heading to a funeral home. But when we got home, it dawned on me, it doesn't just matter what I believe, it matters what I'm going to exercise. And every time God brings that back to my mind and, and being there and being you know, a, a primary caregiver right now, I don't just wait on her and fix her meals and do things for her, which I do. But I also occasionally, when God brings it to my mind, I reach over and grab her hand and I say, hang on a second. And I just grab her hand and I say, I speak to this heart. And I command healing to that heart. It's not enough for me or her to believe that God will heal her heart. I have to command that healing. Not because I'm something special, but I am the head of that household. Now I know I just, feminists all over the universe just, you know, they just tightened up. Being the head of the household does not mean that I'm the boss of the household. Except when it comes to spiritual things. I have the authority primarily to back the enemy off of my family. That's why at the beginning of last year, when we got the call going to Arkansas that Mordecai was, I want to say, two weeks old, and had lost 20% of his body weight in that two weeks. I mean, he was approaching the point where the doctor said, if he doesn't gain you know, this many ounces over the weekend, we're going to have to put him in the hospital and we're going to have to start tube feeding him or put a central line in and feed him, you know, artificially because he's not going to live if we don't intervene here. I had to decide. 
This is my grandson. What am I going to do about it? And I don't have time to tell the whole story, but there were some things that, that I had heard all of my life that I had discounted that when it came to my grandson, suddenly I made a spiritual connection and I went to my daughter and my son-in-law and I said, look, I realize this is your son. You have primary responsibility, but I'm his grandpa. And I think there's some things going on here that don't just deal with you all, but they deal with me and they deal with my grandpas. Because I got some, you know, I, I have a cousin who... When she was alive, she was really into genealogy, and she had this saying, if you go back far enough, you're going to find a couple of generals and a couple of horse thieves, because everybody's got them in their closet. Well, I had a couple of grandpas that were, they weren't horse thieves, but, you know, they would have given a, you know, a bad name to horse thieves. Well, I went and grabbed that little boy, and I, and I went, because they agreed, and I prayed over him, and I broke everything generationally I could think to break. Because I saw the enemy trying to, to steal from my daughter and my son-in-law and from me. And I took authority over it as the head of that house. Now, I wasn't his immediate father, but I had a relationship there and I did everything I could. That's what it meant to be the head. Being the head of Gina means I stand there and I speak and I command her body to be well. Does that mean she's instantly... Just getting up and running marathons? No, but going back to Isaiah 43, it shall spring forth. The root is taking root. It is sprouted. And the roots are starting to grow. And the life is there. And I, by faith, I go to Hebrews 11, and we'll have to get into that next week, but I'm framing that world. I'll be honest with you, that event, when I walked into BJ's and I looked in that bathroom and I saw those EMTs on my wife, that, that image is burned into my brain forever. I don't ever want to experience the emotions I felt right then. But even in the midst of the emotions, there was an anchor. There was the word, Psalm 118, 17. I shall not die, but I will declare the works of the Lord. The Lord gave me that verse very early on in that, in that incident. And I latched on to that. And I, it's, God made a way. But we ain't out of the woods yet. But I have to believe and frame my, our existence with my words. She's taking my lead. She's framing her existence because it's her body. Let's face it. I have authority over her body as her husband. I don't have the authority she's got. She has to latch on to it and do the same thing. That has to be my vision for the world, for my world. Once I get that vision, then I can expand that out to my family, to my friends, to my church. That's my challenge to us today. And I'm having a hard time tying this in a neat little bow. But that is my challenge. Remember, I started this. What's your vision for 2016? There are some things that have marked you in your life. There are some events that when you go back, this is how you identify yourself. This is what the enemy says, you dirty rascal, you're never going to get past this. This is who you are. You need to just kick him in the teeth and tell him to shut up. You know, I remember it's Peter or James that says you need to resist the devil. He goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Well, don't let him devour that part of you anymore. Tell him that's, that's in my past, that's not who I am today. Well, who are you? Well, I'm, I'm a brand new person who's seated in, in, in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. 
And from that place, I can speak into my life and say, this is where I'm going in 2016. This is what I'm going to see. I'm going to see a new body. I'm going to see healing in my body. I'm going to see my finances turn around. I'm going to see my family relationships turn around. Sometimes it's hard when you start dealing with family relationships. You've got in-laws and outlaws, and there are some events that have marked you in that relationship. Well, you may have to get past that marking. You may have to say, no, that's not how I see them now. Have they hurt me? Yes. Do I may have to put some rules in place for this relationship? Yes. But I'm speaking the word into that. It's going to sprout out. I'm going to speak life into that relationship, and I'm going to see it change. And then you need to get a vision for that, and you now need to allow God to give you a vision for that, and then start speaking it. And the great thing is when we do that individually, then we come in here with hope. And we realize that we come together not just to get my needs met, which I need. When I come in here on Sunday morning and pastor's preaching, I need to hear it. I not only need to hear him preach, I listen to people preach all week. If the only sermon I hear is on Sunday morning, you're starving to death. Because I challenge you, next week, you get up and you eat a great breakfast. And then don't eat again until the next Sunday morning. You won't like that experience. So what do you have to do? You have to dig into the Word. You have to do what Psalm 1. You delight in the Word. You feed on the Word. You meditate on the Word. And when you have a, a crisis, God will give you something to hang on to. And you hang on to it and you, and you speak it. If you have, And everybody's crises will be a little different. But when you have one, when you have that event, this is the defining event that I'm pushing for, then you just latch onto that. You ask God to give you a word that will, a verse that you can hang on to for that event, and you speak that word and speak that word and speak that word and speak that word. And when it seems like it ain't going to work, just realize you may not see anything, but your world is pregnant with that spiritual fact. And you're, it's growing. You may not... Woman that's two weeks pregnant is no more pregnant at nine months than she was at two weeks. The only difference is she knows at nine months she's pregnant. At two weeks, you may not know it. Well, you may not. You may stay two weeks pregnant, to use the metaphor, for years in the Spirit. There are some, some situations you're going to have to speak to for over and over and over and over and over. And if you get discouraged and you quit, what do you do? Repent, pick it back up and start speaking into it again. And keep speaking into it until you see it change. Amen? But you're going to have to get a vision for it. You're going to have to see it in your mind. You're going to have to have a revelation from God's Word for it. Next week, we'll deal with how you get that vision and how you get that revelation. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. I thank You, Lord, that... Thank you so much for joining us. If this message has blessed you today, we invite you to visit us in person at Faith Community Church or online at FCCIndianapolis.com. 